0: This is Detention, a podcast dedicated to candid conversations about education. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Lopez, a global leader, author, speaker, coach, consultant, and entrepreneur who opened a school to close a prison. Join me as I share my insights and bring fellow disruptors to serve time and conversation. Rebels, let's get into some good trouble. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Detention. Today I'm talking about the billion-dollar payday and the education system that will remain broke. To be fully transparent, this episode was inspired by the U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, during his recent remarks at the South by Southwest EDU conference that was hosted in Austin, Texas. Now let me share a little bit about how I got here. I was a part of a panel discussion on the cost of fear and leadership alongside Tony Wagner, a distinguished Harvard professor and author of several books that challenges the American education system. When I heard that the secretary of education was going to deliver his keynote address, I made it my business to be in the audience because I was curious as to how he was going to encourage a room filled with thousands of educators who were facing an economic and educational crisis. So here is a snippet of what he shared, and I want you to pay close attention to how he feels educators should be treated and the ways in which the funding from the American Rescue Plan should be used to support them. In America,
1: I mean, there are a lot of teachers in this room, obviously, and they, they've lived through this last two years. And you know, By the way, round of applause for all you teachers. and difficult, but, you know, there's, there's a real issue with teacher shortages right now. I mean, we were, I was just having a conversation with someone uh, about the military having to come in and fill in in New Mexico uh, the National Guard. Is there anything the federal government can do to attract more teachers or to attract a new generation of teachers and educators? Well, first of all, I'm happy you got substitutes so you can be here. <laughs> I know how hard that is. Um, shout out to the substitutes that are covered. Uh, look, well, you know what we can't do? We can start respecting our educators, uh, nationally. We can start by, by honoring them and not passing legislation that undermines our educators and our education system, right? We, we need to make sure that we're lifting up the profession. We are doing a lot of things. We've been very bold with the American Rescue Plan to talk about increasing teacher pay. Teachers should not have to work two to three jobs to make ends meet. Not, they should have done it before. Definitely not now. But it's more than pay. When I talk to teachers, I hear from them, listen, I just need working conditions that uh, promote my professional growth, that understand uh, the complexity of teaching. You know, we have teachers spending a lot of their own personal time doing work-related stuff, and we've normalized that. Teachers also need to have voice in the conversation. As we reimagine our schools or rebuild our schools, they need to have a seat at the table if we really uh, are serious about honoring the profession, right? So those are some things. The Biden-Harris administration from day one with the ARP funds have really pushed uh, teacher development, teacher support, but also in our budget. I think it's really important and often gets overlooked that any proposal that the president put forward includes teacher uh, pipeline programs, making sure that our uh, educator workforce is more diverse than ever before, and there's real money connected to that. I was in Tennessee recently, and I saw a program. I walked into a high school um, class, and there were students in there. All of them were connecting to be a teacher. And the the teacher of that class was probably the happiest teacher I've seen in in, in a year. Uh, She said, these are going to be teachers too. And they were connected to the university, so when they left that high school, They were going to go to the university. They were going to get financial support, hopefully with the American Rescue Plan, to continue their degrees and then go back into the school. So we need to think outside the box. This is our moment. We need to have our teachers at the table when we make these decisions so that it can be sustainable.
0: Before I share my thoughts, I think it's important that I explain the American Rescue Plan just in case you don't have a clue as to what it means and how it's being applied to education. On March 11, 2021, President Biden signed the American Rescue Plan of 2021 into law. Essentially, it's a trillion dollar, well, let me be specific, a $1.9 trillion coronavirus stimulus package that was designed to help the United States recover from the devastating economic and health effects of the pandemic. Approximately $125 billion was allocated for K-12 education. But in order for districts to receive the money, they had to publish a plan to reopen schools for in-person instruction, which meant that remote learning was not part of this process. A majority of the money had to be used for the safe transition of students and staff back into school buildings. And at least 20% of those funds needed to address learning loss through evidence-based interventions that would respond to the academic And social emotional needs of students now what that meant was whatever was needed in terms of the safety whether that was PPE or any supplies for the safe return of teachers dividers for classrooms all of those things it had to be prioritized with this money but if there were activities that needed to support students from low-income families, children with disabilities, those from, who were English language learners or experiencing homelessness or maybe in the foster care system, the money could be used to support them with special programming. And there needed to be something to address learning loss. So whether that was through summer learning or maybe a supplemental after-school program, or even mental health services that we all know need to be a priority in order for children who are dealing with so much trauma to access their learning. All of this was encompassed inside of the American Rescue Plan, but none of it was prioritized for the needs of teachers. There was no mention about innovation or increased pay for teachers or professional support. In fact, for those of us who have been in leadership and have dealt with budgets and know about funding that is supposed to be utilized for the impact that is needed for our educational process, we know that many times this is geared towards companies that conveniently start to package their products and services around quote-unquote learning loss, quote-unquote mental health support. I'm not saying that those companies won't do the work with fidelity, but what I will say is that many do profit and make millions of dollars by something that was intended to have great impact. So now back to the Secretary of Education's remarks and what he said as it relates to how we shouldn't have legislation that, pa- that is passed, which undermines our educators. And for me, I wanted to know who are the we. Who specifically are those legislators who have passed laws that continue to undermine educators and hinder the advancement of our industry? See, because those are individuals who are voted into their positions. And with so many educators having influence at the polls, it's important for us to know who those people are. Because not only do we want to hold them accountable by going to their offices and writing to them, But simply asking the questions if they know how their decisions are impacting our work inside of our school buildings. And he also mentioned increasing teacher pay, which once stimulus could never be sustainable in making sure that every teacher gets a pay, a pay raise, not just now, but over a period of time. You know, there's a lot of negotiations that even come with pay raises. And then there's the consideration of what that looks like for benefits, which always are tied to teacher evaluations and working hours. The process becomes very, very complicated. And so we already know that change will not come overnight. And those type of changes that are needed are going to take some time. The working conditions that teachers have expressed they need in order to feel like they're developing professionally well I wondered about that as well because in this moment we should be assuring that teachers are in spaces that are not toxic that they are being supported and being met where they're at in terms of their own instructional gaps so who's doing that work I know most of the time, the pressure has been placed on the principals to make sure everything is being done, but they're drowning right now. The question is how are superintendents ensuring that they're checking in with their principals to find out what the needs are in their building? There's this idea that when someone leads a building, they have all the answers, but in reality, they need the most support. There are so many expectations there are so many changes that are happening and decisions that have to be made immediately. Superintendents need to be inside of buildings, not for the purpose of evaluations, but simply to have conversations with their principals to find out where teachers are at, what resources are needed, what are really the needs of the children, and if there's a plan of action in place to make sure that things are moving along so that we can see positive impact overall. But another thing that stood out for me was the fact that he talked about teacher voice being at the table, especially as we reimagine education. Well, here's the thing. Schools are not just comprised of teachers. And that's not a knock on anyone who is a teacher. I'm What I'm simply saying is, schools are complex and there are so many professionals who support the work around servicing children so we need a holistic approach which means school psychologists occupational therapists physical therapists guidance counselors teachers and principals need to be at that table because everyone has a different approach and a different perspective of how they service a child. So instead of feeling motivated and inspired, I had a lot of questions and concerns. So later on that evening, I was at the Spread Love Party that was hosted by Mike Kleber and James Miles. They were actually the curators of the the leadership summit and panel that I had participated on. This party was to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the assassination of the bed rapper Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious B.I.G. And being that I'm from Brooklyn, I was in my moment. But then to find out that the Secretary of Education was coming to join us, well, I had the opportunity of actually formally meeting him after an introduction from both Mike and James, and we took a group photo. Thereafter, I watched as so many impressionable young teachers came up to him one by one, and they shared their appreciation for him being there, but also his presentation as part of the keynote address. But as I stood on the sidelines, I began to think of all of the educators who didn't have this privilege, that they had gone to work that morning despite feeling defeated, being stretched so far beyond capacity, and feeling undervalued. I thought about if they could be in front of him at this very moment, what would they say, especially since he was the highest ranking Officer in education. So I decided to approach him. And I started out by sharing how I was the founder and former principal of Monthall Bridges Academy. And after 10 years of leading a school that I loved, I was forced to resign. And it was all because my health had been compromised and it became a life-or-death situation. I also shared that I was now coaching school leaders to help them build their capacity, but also provide them with strategies for personal sustainability. Yet there are so many who no longer wanna be part of this profession. And all he could do is respond with wow. Then I asked him about the American Rescue Act and how these funds were gonna be regulated because that's important. He explained that there were no strict regulations attached to the money and that the expectations was that each district utilized it to best serve their schools. Now, I immediately thought about how much money had already been poured over the years into the education system, and quite frankly, we haven't made any progress. So now in this moment, I needed to express the concerns that there was a lack of guarantee that this money would be used with fidelity. And so he proposed that teachers and students needed to use their voice to fight for what they needed. So I respectfully pushed back and I said, teachers are tired. And our students are in classrooms with substitute teachers. At this point, everyone is just trying to survive. And what he did in that situation was he double tapped my arm. And I don't know if you're familiar with what that looks like or what that feels like. But, you know, you've ever done it to someone where you're like, okay, go ahead, run along. Usually you do it to, you know, a child. And he said, I hear you and double tapped. I looked at him and I said, I understand your job is very difficult, but something has to be done. he looked at me again and kind of looked away and tapped me and said, yeah, 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 I, I, I hear you, I hear you. And I figured at this point he was annoyed. And he was also looking at his security detail. The way you look at someone when you're at a party and you want to find something to distract you so you no longer have to speak to this person. Well, I'm not saying that's his intention, but I'm going to tell you that that's how it went down. And so he began talking to his security detail. And just like that, the conversation was over. Now, I know that we were at a party and maybe the time and place didn't lend for this type of conversation. But this was not a private party. And he is the secretary of education who came to a gathering of educators. And his priority is really to serve the people and based off of his remarks on the stage where he said we need to give educators voice, I was going to be that person who took advantage of what he said. And aside from that, he hadn't been the first secretary of education that I've ever spoken to and had hard conversations with. In 2015, when I visited President Barack Obama with the founder of Humans of New York, Brandon Staten, and my scholar Vidal, while they took advantage to go and see the West Wing, I decided I wanted to go to the US Department of Education. I wasn't interested in touring the rest of the White House. After our meeting with the president, I felt like the next most important person would be Arnie Duncan. Once I got to the Department of Education, I was able to meet with him and various individuals on his team. But what stood out from that visit was the fact that he and I had one-on-one time to just discuss some of the challenges I was facing. But the very first thing that he asked me, Nadia, how are you taking care of yourself? No one really asks me that. So I said to him, listen, you all keep making policies on a federal level. By the time it gets down to the district level, it's so convoluted, but somehow it's tied to my evaluation that I spend most of my time just trying to figure things out and disrupt the school to prison pipeline. And he said, you know, your work is hard and it's so complicated, but you have a daughter and you really have to take time for yourself. And he didn't make any excuses for the laws that had been passed. And he didn't try to force me to understand that, you know, this is for the betterment of children. He literally said to me, you have to take time for yourself. Because he knew like I knew. These laws come and we all have to navigate around and through them. But after that meeting with... Arnie Duncan, he actually sent me a handwritten note. I received it a few weeks later, in which he encouraged me to take yoga and to enjoy motherhood because the most important thing would be my health. Looking back, I wish I would have listened, but the reality is that the work was the work and I wasn't the only leader who was going through the same thing in terms of compromising my health. And because of that meeting with Arnie Duncan, I was in a position to have the US Department of Education come into Brownsville and host a meeting with principals in which they could share their concerns and what their needs are. And they were provided with various resources so that they could connect with a point person in the office of the Secretary of Education. And with the success of that, I was able to host another meeting in another district, but this time, not only were there principals, but superintendents as well. And after I met with Arnie Duncan, I had the privilege of also being in company with US Secretary of Education, Dr. John King. Now I knew John from before him going to DC and taking over that position. He was actually the principal of Roxbury Prep in Massachusetts. And in 2008, when I became a new leader, it's a program that is designed to help aspiring principals prepare for taking over a school or writing a proposal. He had shared the various strategies and framework that he used in order to hire the right people for his school. He felt that when you hire your staff, it's one of the most important elements to your school because you need to ensure you have the correct people on the bus who are willing to ride out for your mission and vision. And if not, you have to get them off. And his way of approaching his hiring practices, I still used it up until the last year of my principalship. Later on in 2011, he would become the Commissioner of Education in New York State. And I remember talking to him about the rollout of the Common Core and how I felt it was disastrous for me as a principal because in the New York City DOE, it wasn't done in a way that it helped with the transition or really explaining what the standards were and how that should look like in our classrooms. Yes, they did have workshops, but the modeling, the expectations, that wasn't really evident. And so he acknowledged the complications. He was also trying to just manage what it was like to govern over New York State, but knowing New York City walked to the beat of its own drum. And he said, listen, it's still going to be difficult this is not an easy road but in any way that my office can be a support to you please don't hesitate to reach out and then when he became secretary of education we did sit on a panel together and discuss special education at the essence fest in 2016. And there he used his position to empower families and other educators around how to advocate for special education. What are the expectations that we should have in our buildings? See, he was in a position of saying, this is what's happening. This is what it is. And these are the things that we need to do as a collective to get it done. With John and Arnie, I felt seen I've seen them actually engage in the practices of saying, what can we do to make things better? And I'm not saying that Secretary of Education Cardona isn't capable of doing that, and, or that he's not doing that right now. But what I am saying is that when he makes recommendations about the American Rescue Plan, and I think about the struggles that's happening in our school building, I say if I could recommend anything to him, the first thing would be while he's going around and having meetings that include teachers and leaders, I would offer him to take the opportunity to actually talk to superintendents about how are they supporting those very educators who are speaking about the needs in their building. What are the plan of actions that they have in place? What is the actual evidence that they're using to track progress? Because at the end of the day, the superintendents have to be the ones in this moment to lead their schools and to support their educators across every school building. And when I think about the shortage of teachers that we're dealing with right now that money should have been used to one incentivize teachers who are currently in the positions who are feeling like I don't want to do this anymore that money should be utilized in order to hold colleges and universities accountable because what I didn't mention in the beginning is that colleges and universities actually receive 40 billion dollars that's right billion, what would it look like for those colleges and universities to prepare teachers for this new environment of education? What would it look like for them to partner with districts so that there's a pipeline to fill those vacancies, especially in the most marginalized communities where the learning loss is so significant? using that money so that those teachers who are having to work two or three jobs can feel like they want to invest their time and their energy in the spaces where they feel that they are doing the most and the best work. Throughout his story and his sharing, there was never any mention about the tech companies, you know, so many of these companies that we had to utilize during the pandemic, like let's say Zoom, Microsoft, Google, in order to do virtual remote learning, in order to host meetings, these companies made so much money off of the data that they were collecting day in and day out. And don't even get me started on TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. For many of us, we use those platforms either to host lives, to share memes. There were so many parodies that were made about education and it kept people engaged, which then meant that those companies were making a lot of money through advertisements. Off of the profit that was made from the backs of children and educators in buildings, at minimum, from his position, I would strongly encourage the secretary of education to say to those companies, listen, we need professional development for our teachers so that they can actually incorporate the usage of apps into their instruction, because we know that kids are staying online and they're fully engaged in what they see whether it's the long form videos, whether it's pictures, but there's data that's being collected. And those companies are using them to literally manipulate. And maybe I shouldn't say manipulate, but subconsciously convince us that these are the things that we enjoy because we we are always seeing these images. What would that look like if we can create spaces where learning is happening? What would it also look like for those companies to help provide access and exposure to STEM fields connected to to the tech industry? See, there's so many things that we can do if we just leverage and ask these companies and organizations to hold their end of the deal. Now, I know that these recommendations have been geared towards the Secretary of Education, but again, it was just based off of his remarks that he made at South by Southwest EDU. These could be easily applicable by superintendents and principals. And I know that is all possible simply because I did it when I let Mott Hall. I develop relationships and partnerships with colleges, universities and teacher training programs. I leverage relationships at Google as well as Facebook and Spotify to expose my young people to the profession. To also talk about how we can utilize their platforms and get resources to develop my teachers professionally. See, as a disruptor and a rebel, it was important for me to do the things that made sense and take risk and not conform and then expose what the truth really is behind what's happening in our schools. See, there is a major payday that's happening and that money, we will never know where it's going to go. And those companies that stand to make millions of dollars unless you're investing in their stocks or you really know their financials, we have no clue what it's going to mean for our children 10, 15 years from now. But what I do know is that they won't be the beneficiaries of any of it. And I will say this, parents have to be involved in this process as well, because it's not just about educators. Knowing that there has been funding that literally has come from taxpayers' dollars to be utilized in support of our young people, you need to ensure that the educators in the school building are equally qualified to do the work. See, I'm always intrigued at how parents from the most affluent communities know how to leverage relationships, whether it's the attorneys, elected officials, or board members. Their demands are clearly articulated as expectations because they know that their children are an asset and they will not allow them to ever be compromised. So they get what they want. But those who are in marginalized communities They don't know how to advocate because they don't have agency. They also tend to express themselves in ways that people are uncomfortable because they're not culturally connected or don't understand the complexities of the communities they come from. What COVID did was just simply expose the ugly truths of our flawed system and how unqualified many have been to lead or teach during this age of technology. So you would think that the money would be prioritized for that. Before we could even reimagine what schools look like, our workforce need to develop the skills for the 21st century. And what was exposed was how deeply inequitable the system is and continues to engage in so many practices that are oppressive. But again, none of this is being addressed. So folks, the American Rescue Plan, it's not here to save our schools. It's here to create profits for companies, tech companies, companies that deal with curriculum, quote-unquote professional development, and that's a loose term because how are they really supporting our schools? What are they offering that's customized to the needs of our schools? These tutoring services that are online, when we know that most children did not thrive online, but they can make up to $1,000 a day, it's so upsetting. And it's actually ridiculous, but there's no checks and balances and that's intentional. And so for those people who want to argue that the recommendations that I've made, like, you know, I need to give the U.S. Department of Education a chance and that there's really good work that's happening. Listen, I've done this for a very long time and I don't walk around with rose colored glasses. I know what it is. I know how funding is used. I know how we're sometimes coerced into choosing specific companies. I know how companies get a leg up and find out in advance of things coming down the pike. And so they package themselves in such a, such a perfected way that we buy into it. But at the end of the day, those services are not aligned to what we need in order to move children and to disrupt the system in its entirety. Nope, that's not what happens. And so it's time for us to look at individuals in positions that we deem powerful and ask the question, whether they serve the people in a way that is transformative and brings innovation to a system that is antiquated and filled with so much toxicity. Leadership requires action, and that means that you have to do things that will become uncomfortable because that's what's required to get it done, to make change. But some positions come with the high price of privilege, access, and opportunity that many are not willing to sacrifice because they've waited so long for this moment. This defines who they are and their careers. But for those of us who know the cost of disruption, we would rather step up and speak up than become part of the status quo and just settle. The one thing that I do agree with the Secretary of Education is that we need to respect our educators. But it starts with those types of positions that say it loud, proud, and strong for the entire nation to hear, not just a conference. But I guess I should also say we should stop waiting for people to speak up on our behalf if we're not willing to do it for ourselves. Folks, we have to stay active in knowing what's going on. And when I speak, I want you to know that it is from a place of love because there's so much potential And I do believe in the hope of things changing, but it requires us to stand together. And it takes little things for each of us to become disruptors and rebels, for the sake of our children, for the sake of the education profession, and really for the sake of our future. I wanna thank you for serving detention with me. Stay connected by following me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Lopez Effect. If you're interested in my services as a coach, a consultant, or even a speaker, you can check out my website at www.thelopezeffect.com. And I do want to mention that if you ever need inspiration or encouragement on a Sunday before you head back to work on Monday, I host Tea With Me and it's a safe space for educators to have their cups filled and to feel seen. And you can register at tinyurl.com backslash tea with Dr. Lopez. And lastly, last plug, The Bridge to Brilliance is my story. It's a book that I wrote sharing the journey of opening a school to close a prison because I thought it was important to see a woman of color in leadership in a community like Brownsville where there was brilliance and there was hope because they had been silenced and made to feel helpless. You can order your copy on Amazon and all of this will be on the show notes. I know it's a lot. And if you're walking or you're listening while you're in your car, I don't want you to have to pull over or remember any of these things. Just simply go to the show notes and the links will be there. Remember, it's okay to get into a little bit of good trouble. But make sure you take gentle care of yourselves, and that you decide to put yourself first. Until next time,
1: peace!